Today's episode of the Strength Talk podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, is brought to you by the Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, the Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, the Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to the brand new Strength Doc podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, with me, Dr. John Russin. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast, and I'm sure as hell not your run-of-the-mill strength coach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with a brand new episode of Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, I am joined by Coach Andrew Reed. Andrew's a guy that I've followed for a long time, and I actually got to catch up with him when I was down in Australia a couple weeks ago. We had an amazing conversation at dinner, and I thought, what better place to continue that conversation than on Strength Talk Podcast? Let's get right into it, guys, with Andrew Reed. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with a brand new episode of Strength Talk Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, I am joined by strength coach Andrew Reed. What's going on, Andrew? Good morning, John. How are you doing? Good, man. It seems like a couple weeks uh, since we were together in Melbourne, Australia. That was quite the time. Thanks for uh, having me out to dinner. Yeah, that was uh, in the middle of the Australian Open. You guys uh, didn't have such a good year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, the weather was a little bit crazy. The travel was a little bit crazy, but... It was cool to touch base with some guys down there, uh, some coaches, including yourself. And it really just shocked me that, you know, people from literally as far away from Madison, Wisconsin, as you can possibly get in the world are reading what I have to write, listening to Strength Talk podcast. It was amazing to see. So it was really cool to touch base. I mean, that's the magic of the internet, right? I mean, I remember when I first started training people, I mean, you know, if you were good, if you were good at your job. Maybe someone in another gym in the neighborhood knew who you were, but there's a fair chance that the only people who knew who you were were the people in that gym. So maybe you know a couple hundred people, and then uh, the internet came around, and now you can be you, you know you can be famous in a, in a country you've never been to. I mean, I look at stats on like my website and stuff, and I can see people in in weird countries like Argentina reading my articles. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I'm always shocked with, uh, you know, the non-English speaking countries that we get uh, readership from. I'm like, wow, <laughs> now well, I'm I, making I, an impact. I always think it's just Australian tourists who've just decided to log on from another country. <laughs> you know what? Australians make up, I think, the third lar- largest readership on drjohnrutson.com uh, behind America and then Canada kind of in there with America, and then England, and then Australia is actually third or fourth. Yeah, those those are the big three. I mean, and and I see the same thing. So uh, uh, my readership actually, so I've got uh, most in Australia, and then America, and then the UK. And, And I think, you know, most websites, most fitness websites, probably the same. Yeah, we were talking about this off air before, but, you know, Australia is a huge country, but there's not a whole lot of people there, right? No, no, it's uh, yeah, it, it's about the same size as the U.S. minus Alaska because Alaska is pretty big, but uh, about the same size as the U.S. but with twenty-two million people. So that's like about ten percent of what you've got, or something, right? What do you guys got? Like two hundred eighty million or something? Yeah, something like that. It's probably the size of like L.A. or New York City. Yeah, so uh, and that's for me when I go overseas and and depending where I go, if I hit a major city in the U.S., the first thing that gets me is wow, there's just so many people around here. Because even when you know, like a doing air quotes, like a traffic jam here, 
and it takes like 20 minutes to get through and we're like oh my god like traffic's so bad <laughs> never mind you know i've seen pictures of traffic jams in china that took four days to clear up <laughs> I've been in uh, a couple of those traffic jams in China, so I know exactly what you're yeah, talking and like, about. My, my parents used to live in Sao Paulo, which is 20 million people. So I've been to, in Brazil a couple of times and you know, you, you go over there and you're like, holy cow, like this, this is the entire country in one city. It really makes you realize uh, how spread out things are. But then you, know, you look at like what you were saying before about the, the number of statistics for who's involved in sport and strength and conditioning and things like that and you realize actually that in terms of that stuff, we're doing pretty well. So even though we don't have very many people, there's a lot of people here who are interested in, in our stuff. I think so too. Um, I'm always really shocked to know, you know, like the conversion of not so many people, but then having a lot of great minds, especially in the fitness industry coming out. Or even when you look at physical therapy, uh, there's a lot of really well-renowned schools over in Australia. And there's a lot of notable people uh, that have really made their mark on physical therapy as a whole in the last 50 years or so that are Australian trained and educated. Well, you know, you've got that famous study that uh, what they do, the, the guys in Queensland did about drawing in for TVA activation. I mean, so that kind of skewed things for a fair while about core activation and, and support while lifting. Uh, I think we've kind of learned better now. But I mean, so, so, you know, not always positive for the right reasons. But then if you look at the Strength and Conditioning Journal, so um, if you look through the NSCA stuff, you'll always see studies from guys at Edith Cowan, which is in West Australia. So that, that's probably the number one strength and conditioning university in Australia. Yeah, and like, do you guys think like New Zealand's like totally off, like they're like some totally different country, or do you kind of consider them one of your own as well? They're like us, just not as good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, look, I mean, New, New Zealand is, um, geez, they do some amazing stuff. And so when you look at what, on a world level, what Australia manages to accomplish, like at the Olympics and things like that, um, we do very well. New Zealand, I think, does even better because their population is only a few million. And so, uh, last Olympics, I can remember a few medals that they won. And when you start basing it on population, you realize they've actually really punched above their weight there because they do well in rowing, they do well in track cycling, hockey. There's a, there's quite a few sports that they actually do pretty well in. Oh yeah, for sure. And, uh, and and then this year, I mean, you know, rugby sevens is a is an Olympic sport this year, and there's just been a big tournament this weekend. So New Zealand won, Australia came second uh, in the girls. I can't remember who won the girls, but you know, it's been interesting watching the rugby because, you know, you guys have that. I can't remember what what the article number is, but it, it's the thing where the male scholarships and female scholarships have to balance. Yeah, at a the title level. nine. Yeah. Yeah, and so. Um, Rugby is a is a full Div One sport for females in the US, right? Yep. But not rugby sevens doesn't count really anywhere else in the rest of the world. Everyone's like, no one wants to play sevens. Sevens is what kids play, <laughs> and th then they move up to full rugby, which is fifteen aside. And uh, you know, so, so I would hear from friends in the US, oh, you know, like the the women did this or the women did that. I'm like, yeah, but you do understand that no one else actually cares about sevens. That's a sport that only you guys are playing. Until now. So last year, for instance, the New Zealand guys won the World Cup. They smashed everyone. So they actually beat Australia in the final. Um, and a lot of their top guys were going to retire. And then the sevens coach came along and said, hey, what do you think? Olympic medal and then you can retire. So you're going to see some really talented guys playing in the sevens at the Olympics this year. It's, um, it's going to change some things around. And I think New Zealand's going to crush everyone. 
people are going to be amazed at the level of, of uh, the skill that they've got versus all the other countries. I don't even think it's going to be close based on what I saw on the weekend. Man, when I was over in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, I was training at this really, really nice performance center. And I hooked up with the, you know, the head trainer over at this gym, and he had some impressive clientele. You know, he had pro athletes uh, left and right. Are you talking right? Like some All Blacks came in or yeah, something? Yeah, like yeah. So I was, I was learning from this guy. You know, anytime that I'm out of the country or even in a different city, I, I want to learn from the best coaches out there. So I'm learning from this dude, and these two guys roll in, and they look like they were like NFL linebackers. You're huge, ripped. They just looked explosive, and then we, they started working out. And I'm like, what sport do these guys play? And, you know, they had their all black stuff on. And even I know what that is. You know, America, we don't know a whole lot about rugby, but I knew what all blacks was. And I was just so impressed because these guys, I feel like, could have stepped on the field in the Super Bowl and done very, very well just from a physicality standpoint. Yeah. Well, you know, like, so playing for the all blacks, that's like playing hockey for Russia, soccer for Brazil. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like if you make the the national team in in that sport in that country, a you're an amazing athlete because that's the sport that's attracting all the top talent in that country, and b you're a god because <laughs> you, like the rest of the country idolizes you. So you know, like, you make the All Blacks. Those guys are tough, man, because every single kid in that country is competing for their spot. So, you know, and again, there's only 15 spots. It doesn't matter how small the country is. When there's only 15 spots on the starting lineup, you know, they're pretty hotly contested, right? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, that's one sport that we definitely don't have an appreciation for in America. But, you know, I know that you have a, a strong background uh, in triathlon and Ironman training more specifically. And that's one of the biggest things over here just for, um, you know, the general endurance athlete, uh, especially in what? Madison, Wisconsin, where I am. We have an international qualifier for Ironman. So uh, not a lot of people know this that listen to the Strength Doc podcast, but I prep a whole lot of people for half Ironmans and Ironmans, including a handful of professionals. And just when you guys thought that, uh, you know, it was just a pure meathead here yes i do appreciate endurance training and programming so i definitely wanted to ask you about you know your experience with ironman over in melbourne but also programming and the type of strength and conditioning and endurance programs that you put together for your athletes well okay so so first to qualify i've done an ironman i've done a, <laughs> a few I've, I've done a few halves but uh I basically was standing on the finish line for the first Melbourne Ironman and, you know, I watched this guy, Craig Alexander, so he's a multiple Kona champion, so he's like the best in the world. Happens to also be Australian, but he's come across the finish line, it's under eight hours, which for people who aren't familiar with Ironman is blazing fast. It's funny how an eight-hour time can be blazing fast, but there you go. Um, and, and, you know, it looks like he hasn't even cracked a sweat the whole day. Everything looks so – I mean, he just runs beautifully. And, and I was like, oh, my God, and look at the crowd, and this is amazing, and what a journey, and I'm totally going to do one of these. And so I sent a message to the then editor of Breaking Muscle, Becca, and said, hey, what do you think? Like zero to Iron Man in 12 months. And she loved the idea, which unfortunately meant I had to go and do one. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I came from like a background like you. So I, I really had been a martial artist for my whole life. So most of my sports last sort of six to 10 minutes. And so, you know, the idea that I'm going to go for, you know, 11 to 12 hours was totally foreign um, and, and went through all the normal sort of trials that, 
you know, a 40 year old guy might, if they took up running and all that kind of stuff. So I had some injuries, I had some calf problems, I had some Achilles problems and uh, learnt a lot of things that you should and shouldn't do along the way. Like, you know, like don't change your shoes. Like if you find a shoe that, that works well for you and it's not hurting you, for God's sake, don't change just because you read an ad on something. Forget running barefoot, forget, just find a shoe that works for you and stick with it. Um, even down to little nutritional things like, hey, if you've got a nutritional product like a, a gel, so when you're going for 10 or 12 hours, you obviously need to get some, some food into the body but while your heart rate is high, you can't really digest food. So you use these really simple sugar things called gels for people who aren't familiar with them and it's basically like jelly but it's, it's kind of soft runny jelly uh, and it's just a straight sugar hit. But some companies, whatever products they put in there, like the compounds they use to bind it together or whatever, may not agree with your stomach. So it's entirely possible that 50 grams of sugar from one company does not feel like 50 grams of sugar from another company because one will make you sick and one will allow you to keep running. Uh, so you, you learn all this stuff along the way and then you know, you've got kind of what I call the reality of strength training for Ironman. So you start off with this plan saying, well, I'm going to do this, this and this. And that goes really well up until you're about three months out. And at about three months out, that's when you start really doing the longer stuff. And so, you know, your weekend is taken up with, I don't know, like a two to three hour run on one day and maybe even a swim and then maybe a shorter run just to get the legs ticking over fast again after you've beaten them to pieces with the long run. And then the next day you might do a four to six hour bike ride with another 30 to 60 minute run afterwards. And then... Your original plan said, hey, I'm going to go to the gym on Monday and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And Monday comes around and you can barely open your eyes and you're so <laughs> stiff that, and, and your feet hurt because you've been smashing them into concrete all weekend. And your legs are tired and you can't squat and all these things, you realize that's just not going to work. So your plan becomes more corrective in nature. And, uh, you know, you're really using the gym to iron out all the problems that you create from your sport. So you're trying to get out of your aero position on the bike. You're trying to free up your shoulder mobility from being hunched over so you can swim properly. You're trying to roll out your legs and get some massage so that your calves and your hamstrings and your glutes deal with running properly. And, you know, I started thinking about the gym was more like the garage. So, you, you know, we're going to go out and track and we're going to race. But then between every race meeting, your Formula One car goes in the garage for long periods of time. And, you know, when you started looking at the amount of garage time you needed versus training time, I was like, well, we probably need more garage time than most of us are giving ourselves. And then, you know, you, you travel along the path and when you get to about a month out, when you're doing your absolute longest sessions, which is just before you start tapering, the reality is you're doing nothing else because you're so smashed from the training. And so for people who don't know what it feels like to go and ride for six hours and then run for an hour afterwards. I can tell you're pretty tired afterwards. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and, and you, you know what? Like if you on race day when you're tapered and that's all you do for the whole week, it's okay. But at these points in your peak weeks, you might be training 24 to 26 hours a week. So, you know, when, when you do six hours of exercise on top of 18 hours of exercise, you're pretty damn tired. And so, you know, you're, you're sleeping eight or nine hours a night because you can't stay awake anyway. You're probably falling asleep at some time during the day. Um, you're eating, I mean, you can eat, God, anything you want. There was a point before Ironman, I was eating like family-sized blocks of chocolate and, <laughs> and, to, and still losing weight. 
and <laughs> you know, like, like, and all these things that people are like, oh, well, we shouldn't eat bread and we shouldn't do that and we shouldn't do that. You know, uh, I had some guys say to me like once, how do you get so lean? I was like, do three hours of cardio every day. And, <laughs> and they're like, ha, 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 right? Like, like I'm kidding. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm deadly serious. When you do three hours of cardio a day, you can eat whatever you want and you'll be lean. I was like 9% body fat. And when you're in your 40s, getting down into single digits is really difficult unless you're doing three hours of cardio a day, in which case you can eat whatever you want and you'll still be single digit body fat. So, you know, it was an interesting journey. I don't plan on doing another one, but it has allowed me to. I work with a guy who's a, he's a half Ironman racer. He's a pro. He had some podiums last year, so that's pretty good. Um, and I just did a little bit of stuff with a guy who rides for Orica Greenedge. So he's gone overseas again now and um, uh, is back in, like, I guess the European scene. So there's not much I can do for him now. Uh, but it allows me to at least talk to them and understand what they're going through a little bit. Because if you haven't done it, you just don't know how, how fatiguing it really is. I mean, people think from a strength setting, you know, they can hit it hard three or four times a week. I have never, and, and that's tough training, right? I've never met anyone tougher than these pro endurance guys. Like the amount of hardship they go through for their sport is is crazy. The The agony and I mean, even just not counting crashes, just in training and the tiredness and having to back it up session after session after session is is amazing. And then you look at some of their their heart rate data and how much power they're putting out and you realize how much suffering is involved to do what they do. And then, you know, they'll take a day off and then they'll go race somewhere else. It's it, it, seriously, the, the, the pro endurance guys are hard as nails. Very impressive guys to, to, to hang out with for, for periods of time because, you know, a lot of the people come in and like you, I came from like a strength and power sort of background. So, you know, you, you hang out with these guys and you look at them and they're like, you know, 135, 140 pounds soaking wet. And, you know, they look like they, they couldn't hurt a fly until it comes to race day. And then if looks could kill and you get in their way, they'll, they'll murder you just to, to shave three seconds off their time. I mean, they're, they're absolute stone cold killers when they're in a race situation. Yeah, I've been there, you know, on race day with some of the guys like you're describing, and it's a, it's almost a mental switch that they're able to turn on and off. You know, that's uh, definitely part of the equation. But going back to that analogy you made of using strength and conditioning, using your gym sessions, almost like you're taking the Formula One car into the garage to get worked on. I love that because that is just so true. Uh, obviously, when you're in your off season uh, from endurance or Ironman training, uh, you're going to have a little bit more of a heavy load on yes. just the fundamental movement patterns, loading them up and trying to you know get that power to mass ratio up so you can be better at your sport. But really, it's all about an intelligent taper. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially in America, they don't appreciate uh, the complexity of training that goes into not only completing an Ironman. Nobody wants to complete. We want to actually compete. You know, it's, well, it's a difference uh, between being an athlete and going out and trying to better yourself and getting your best time possible and trying to podium as opposed to like slogging around for, you know, 20 hours. <laughs> like yeah. Well, so, so, I mean, in, in any Ironman or in any endurance event, it, there's three tiers really in my mind. So there's the guys who are actually racing to win the pros and then a handful of age groupers racing to win their age group. Then there's a chunk who are, like you say, competing for a PR against themselves and, and take it very seriously. 
And then there's what we'll call the bucket list people who are really just going around to, to complete it. Well, no, that's the stat, right? So 50% yeah. of Ironman competitors are first-time competitors. And of those, more than 50% won't do a second one. So I, wow. I'm in that category. I've, I've got no desire to go do another one because the, the downside of it is – and because I love training. So Ironman for me is fantastic because I get to train a lot. Um, but the recovery from it is like about three months. So, you know, you've got to give up. Basically, for me, I gave up a year beforehand and I gave up three months afterwards. So 15 months and there's a period there where because you're training so much, work's not getting done, you're, you're really, it's quite selfish. You're kind of a shitty partner as well. Um, and we even have a deal in my house because my, my partner did an Ironman last year and I was, I was really close to jumping in with her. But we remembered from when I did it that there'd be no laundry getting done, there'd be no <laughs> groceries getting because you towards the end you're useless. You're just so tired that even getting up off the couch to like make some food could be a max effort for you in the afternoon. So someone has to be doing the housework and the grocery shopping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just the normal shit in life. <laughs> yeah, but you know this is you talk to the the pro guys. And you can read their books and all that kind of stuff. And they basically say, yeah, I, I go out and train. I come in, I, I go to sleep. And my wife does all the housework and buys all the the groceries and whatever and, and cooks all the food. And it's, it's a terrible burden for her. But this is actually my job. And if I don't rest, if I get up and walk around and even go play with the kids or whatever, I'm less effective at my job. So there's very much a timeline there where you're going, okay, so like racing is now like I'm maybe I've – past my peak and you know I, I recognize I'm not dealing with my family very well so you know we need to to address this and and one of the main reasons they stop is they just want to hang out with their partner and their kids more because the the drain on time is not like you know if you're a weightlifter or something and even a like a great international level weightlifter maybe you're training for a couple of hours a day right it's not the same as going for a 5 or 6 hour ride and then needing to sleep for 2 hours afterwards like that's the whole day gone <laughs> And, and for the average person, they're like, oh, my God, you know, you go to the gym for 90 minutes every day. That's so much. And then, you know, some of these guys that I'm coaching, they're they're training up yeah. to 20, 25 hours a week of actual training. And, you know, it's it's absolutely crazy. But I love that stat that you said, you know, 50 percent of people that are going to be in an Ironman are first time competitors. And of those 50 percent, half of them will never do another Ironman. What, mm. what do you think the draw is to the people that half of those people that actually get back into it again and start doing them on a year to year basis? Oh, it's a drug, man. I mean, honestly, like I've never. Hold on. I'll be careful. There's only two other things I've done that made me feel like I, I have accomplished as much as I did when I crossed the line at Ironman. So I wasn't fast. I did like 12, 19 or something. I mean, there's guys who are way faster than me. Um, but it's, it's a special thing. You know, like honestly, a marathon, I could just run a marathon on any Saturday if I wanted to. And I don't mean like going into one. I, I know I actually have enough in my legs to go and run 40 kilometers nonstop. That's no big deal. Um, so the marathon as a, uh, as a test probably doesn't hold the weight that it used to. And, and if you look at marathon stats, so back in the 70s, the average marathon finishing time was 3.20. Now it's 4.30. And the, wow. difference is, it, the difference is the bucket list crew, right? It's the people going, oh, I want to run a marathon to you know, like, like show the world that I've, I've still got what it takes or whatever. And I'd always wanted to do an Ironman, so I went and did one. But I can, if I, 
if I didn't have to show people how to be strong and flexible as a job, I'd totally be doing more Ironmans. And, but that's the drawback is I lost flexibility and I lost strength. And so my ability to actually do my job properly and demonstrate strength and conditioning exercises was diminished. So from a professional point of view, I was like, this thing is almost like suicide because I'm getting, <laughs> no, it, it, and it's, it's not that the sport's no good. It's that for my job, it actually gets in the way. Um, and, and even, you know, running your own business, I mean, God, you could work all day long, seven days a week and still not get everything done. Right. And so now take out 20 hours from your week to train and see how little you're getting done. And there'd be times where, you know, I'd have, let's call it a light day, like a 90 minute ride in the morning and an hour run at night. But the, the ride would be really hard. And I'd finish my ride, have a shower, have something to eat. And I'd sit down and go, right now it's time to work. And I'd stare blankly at the screen unable to get anything done because I was brain dead from the three days before. Yeah. Now, you opened up a huge can of worms here, uh, <laughs> something that we've talked about before. So, you know, just quoting what you just said, you know, you felt like your movement capacity was diminished through Ironman training. And you're yeah. a guy that appreciates fundamental movement patterns. Uh, you know, you're RKC, uh, you do the FMS, you know, one of the best kettlebell instructors out there over well, the we'll, entire we'll, world. For but, accuracy, we have to say former RKC. Oh, former uh, RKC. Uh, yeah, I'm not actually <laughs> part of that organization anymore, but but yes. Educated at a very, very elite level, we'll say, with the kettlebell. But either way, so we you have a lot, a lot of background on what proper movement should look like, what it should feel like, how to teach it, how to hone it. And if even you can't maintain, uh, you know, your core fundamental movement patterns, how is the average person supposed to stay healthy training for an Ironman or an endurance sport? Well, that's the hard thing, right? So I've got two people right now who are heading towards an Ironman in June. They come from very different backgrounds. So the guy who is, uh, he's a great runner. Like he's a, he's a 320 Ironman marathon runner so he i mean that's not a bad marathon time as a standalone marathon and for him to be doing that at the end of an ironman is, is pretty good but to run well you need to be pretty stiff that's actually one of the things that helps with running so there's there's efficient energy return um and so he's been running for he started running competitively at 13 he's been running for 24 years competitively um he doesn't even squat well if you remove the running and all that kind of stuff like even when we have a day where I look and I go, hey, that's pretty good in brackets for you. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, not, it's not good by our general standard, but for you, that's actually pretty good. The girl comes from a different background. She did reasonable gymnastics at an early age, got up to like level seven or something, which isn't bad, um, and has done just a bunch of different sports for the rest of her life, but always kept her flexibility and movement. So she can still do really nice bridges, she can touch her toes. She can nearly do the splits. Um, and because we work when she comes in the gym to maintain that, she hasn't lost any of it. And so I'm more in the, the category of the first guy. Um, my girlfriend is more in the category of the, the female. Mm -hmm. She was able to – so for people familiar with the FMS screen, my girlfriend was a 17 the day after Ironman. Wow. Um, yeah, I was like a nine. <laughs> so, you know, like, and so for her training though, we were still doing it. Like she would, because this stiffness, this feeling is, is there, whether you're a nine or you're a 17, she would come in the gym on days she was meant to train and say, oh, I just feel awful. 
And I'd look and I'd be so jealous and I'd go, oh my God, what do you mean you feel awful? I hate you. But for her, she still felt stiff and tight and, and you know, awful. So we'd just spend all this time doing mobility stuff. And, you know, we'd chase away, you know, the, the things that are affected from running. So uh, hip flexors and quads get tight. Your glutes kind of switch off. You start rounding through your upper back from being on the bike. So, you know, you just go through this like deductive process of, okay, so we need to do, let's say some T-spine rotation extension stuff. We actually need to do some neck stuff because the position your head gets in on an, on an aero bike is, is kind of this weird sort of turtley position where the head's pushed out. Um, we do some stuff to, to switch the glutes on, switch the quads and, and hip flexors off. We want to get into the legs a little bit. So um, we do some, some real basic flexibility stuff for the lower body to try to keep everything working. But at the same time, because there's you know a lot of studies to show that actually if you increase mobility in the lower body, you expose runners to more injury risk and triathletes are at more risk of injury than straight runners are because their exposure to the sport is less, so they're less skilled at it. Uh, so you know you, you've got this really fine window to working with people where you want to keep them where they are and don't let them get any worse. But if you try to improve it, if, if you could manage to, which I don't think you could in the middle of Ironman training because you wouldn't be able to do it enough, but if you could actually increase their flexibility, particularly in the calf, uh, you might want to not do that because that's the sort of thing that's going to lead to injury. Now, I'm going to put myself out there for a second. I know you're you're the expert, the endurance expert here, but... You oh, know, yeah, my for- one man, I'm a real expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll say that loosely, but over the last four years, I've had uh, almost 100 uh, Ironman athletes go through and compete, and I, I would have maybe a handful of people that came down with an injury, maybe three to four uh, that made them not able to compete in their in their race but over that period uh i was able to monitor you know you and i are both fms guys uh, you know it's a quick screen that you can do in two seconds and i was able to monitor their pre-seasons their in seasons and then their off seasons based uh foundationally on their fms score but also on a very very traditional periodization model in terms of strength and conditioning almost to the point where when they were in in-season, I had them on a maintenance plan and they were able to keep maybe 80 to 85% of their uh, strength requisite numbers. And for the most part, they stayed very strong, very healthy and very mobile. And, yeah. um, you know, it was it was something that I played with. You know, this isn't any groundbreaking research by any means, but it, it was definitely a handful of case studies that I saw this with. And I think um, just having a system to judge the functionality of where somebody is at, it can really help out the entire um, the entire preparation for competition because I, you nailed it with you saying that you were a nine after the day after Ironman. That's exactly what I was doing with a bunch of my athletes in the last couple of years. I wanted to see the day before Ironman where they went in and then the day after where they came out. And on well, average, so, so it took people what, three to four months to get back to where their, their score was before race. And that's know, really back, where it's at. I'm normally a 14 or a 15. Uh-huh. And I was back to a 15 within two weeks. Two weeks, uh, wow. Yeah. But, you know, my, my recovery strategy was, uh, you know, heavily mobility-based. And uh, I was in the pool the day after Ironman, which sounds stupid uh-huh. that, you know, after doing 12 <laughs> hours of exercise, you need to do some more. But the reality is if you let the body sit still at that point, it actually gets worse. So you got to yes. move around because you're so used to movement. And this is one of the things... 
people don't understand about movement is that movement will cure lack of movement, right? I mean, it sounds so common sense when you say it, but so many people want to sit still or they do, you know, like 20 minutes of this thing, they think it's going to fix it. Hey, you need to move a lot more than that. We're designed to move. If you go back and you look at like evolutionary sort of biology, we're designed to move pretty much for a whole day foraging for food. So this thing where we have this artificial construct where we go and do 60 minutes of exercise four to five times a week and we think we've done a good job, we're, fall- we're falling very short of what we should be doing. Like, you know, you see people comparing sitting to being the new cancer. It's not even just sitting. It's just inactivity. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't matter whether you're sitting or whether you're lying or whether you're standing still. We're designed to move around for long periods of time. That's, that's one of the things that, that drove our adaptation and got us to be where we are on the food chain. So anyway, so day after Ironman, little swim. When I say little swim, I think I swam a total of about 500 meters. And when you're used to swimming something like four to four and a half kilometers per session, 500 meters with fins on, not actually swimming even continuous. So I'd swim like a lap, take a big rest, swim another lap, take a big rest. But I'm in a cool environment, so I'm stopping inflammation. I'm just doing some really gentle movement with my legs to kind of flush them out. Um, And so I did that for... The first three days, a lot of stretching every day, like an hour of stretching every single day. And within two weeks, you can get back. Now, the fatigue in your body is still there. So, you know, for instance, even if I just um, like ran up a flight of stairs during that period, I'd get to the top of the stairs and be like, whew, that was hard. But just like a CNS fatigue you're talking about. Well, no, just just this deep rooted fatigue that. You know, like it, it sounds so stupid, but even if you stamp your feet on the ground, you can just feel the fatigue in the muscles and you just yeah. know that if, if you push, there'd be nothing there. Um, so that's still there and that took two or three weeks to go away, but the actual movement was back within two weeks. But then the strength numbers, um, I took two weeks completely off anything in the gym started doing you know like like really just light stuff moving around after two weeks um my numbers in the gym were back to where they had been pre-peak Ironman within a month and like you say so I, I don't necessarily know that everyone keeps most of what they got I think if you've got a really deep base I mean I've been lifting weights since I was 13 years old so that's yep. like 30 years at this point um if you've got a deep base, you, you're going to keep a lot of it. And that's like any aspect of fitness, right? I mean, right. if you've done splits every day of your life for 30 years and you decide not to stretch for a month, it's not really going to make a huge difference to you. Um, you know, my old Olympic weightlifting coach who won a silver at the 84 games, this guy Robert Cabas, I've seen him squat 200 kilo with almost no warm-up in jeans and flip-flops. <laughs> yeah, it's because, just ingrained his movement. That's just, that's ingrained. just him, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's done that his whole life. So he, even if he decided to do an Ironman, he's not going to lose a lot. Like I bet if you went and spoke to – who was there? It was an uh, American footballer who did uh, Kona a couple of years ago and I can't remember who it was. Yeah, it was but, Heinz Ward. I was just about to bring him up. You read my mind. There you go. But I, I bet he didn't lose a lot of strength. That's what I was going to say. So uh, you know, that's where I was getting at with this. Do you think that your strong movement capacity, you know, your development over multiple decades before you decided to get into this – ultra endurance uh sport do you think that helped out uh you orthopedically you systemically and do you think that energy systems development that you developed you know 20 years ago helped out uh this totally different energy system when you went to compete 
Uh, well, the aerobic system comes up pretty quickly in my experience. The thing that takes a long time was actually the, the feet and calves. The tissue adaptation is quite slow. So, I mean, you, you can develop the muscular endurance to deal with running very quickly and you can deal, you, you can grow the aerobic system very quickly, but the actual, your feet and calves, the attachments take a long time to, to really get good and deal with running. Um, you know, I, I think it took, I said to my girlfriend, you know, like, like I feel pretty stupid at the end of Ironman. I feel like now I'm ready to train for an Ironman. <laughs> you know, like, so, so it should have, and in my original plan, it was going to be a two-year journey. But once I started, I wrote about it a little bit and I was talking to guys in a local bike shop and, and stuff like that. And, and all of a sudden, people started throwing gear at me. They gave me like a, a $10,000 bike to ride. And, you know, I got a whole bunch of other stuff from a company called Two Times You, which, you know, they do wetsuits and tri gear. And I, I ended up with something like about $20,000 worth of stuff. And they were all looking for, because they've given me product, they're looking for um, marketing. So, you know, like, like I should be writing about them in my, my athlete journals on breaking muscle and all yep. this kind of stuff. So, so my two year plan got halved. But I, I think two years was actually the right number because it took about two years for everything to to kind of click into place. And so, you know, last year, I think we talked about this when you were here, I did the Silfit Kokoro camp. Yes. So and and honestly, I think without having done the huge volume of aerobic training for Ironman, Kokoro would be almost impossible. And or coming from the other end and and going, you know, if I had that really strong aerobic base, but I didn't have years of strength training to go with it. Kokoro would also have been impossible because the weird thing about Kokoro is you kind of need Ironman levels of aerobic ability just in terms of just diesel power, keep chugging along no matter what. But you also need to be pretty strong because you've got to lift some heavy logs overhead and, you know, there's some, I don't know, you've got to carry guys and do like a billion push-ups and, and all that kind of stuff. So without the, the both of them, you're just never going to get there. And it makes you realize, so Kokoro is only three days. It makes you realize how impressive it is the kids who get through buds, which is five and a half days without sleep, and they do it on the fifth week of buds. So, you know, I, I turned up fresh, having slept in a hotel bed and, and eaten whatever I want that morning. Meanwhile, the, the guys actually doing buds have been going at it for four weeks, and then they just, you know, they put the boot into them for five and a half days. So they go for double the time. Hey guys, just for listening into today's episode of the Strength Doc Podcast, I am giving you all a $30 discount code to my new 12-week functional hypertrophy training program. Head over to drjohnrussin.com forward slash FHT dash program. And when you go to check out, use the coupon code podcast for $30 off. This is by far the best program that I've ever written, but you know what's better than the program itself? The fact that you guys get instant email access to me and my staff. So when you're training through and you have questions, you can hit us up on email at any time and get set right back on track. And let's be honest, I want to work with as many Strength Doc podcast listeners as I possibly can because you guys are the best. Yeah, just to, just to make sure everyone's clear on this, so Kokoro Camp is uh, Mark Devine's boot camp for three days out in Southern California. Uh, Mark Devine is an 
ex-Navy SEAL, a uh, high-end operator, and he is really one of uh, the top mental coaches out there, in my opinion, somebody that hopefully we'll be able to bring here on the Strength Talk yeah. podcast you and know, hear like, from him. But uh, just so everyone knew what you were talking about here, uh, it was an amazing conversation that we had in Australia about that because you know, I, I've been uh, a student of Mark Devine as well, and when I heard you did that, I was like, <laughs> I think we talked about it for like 45 minutes, and I was just like dumbfounded. I was like, wow. Well, you know what? This It's proof that you should never leave an idiot at home alone with a credit card in their hand. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I signed up for it in 2014 and went along and I, I was, I, I was kind of arrogant. I'd trained for, or I was training for a half Ironman at the same time, you know, cause in my head I'm like, well, energy system is energy system. So it doesn't matter whether I run or bike or whatever. I'm, I'm still developing that kind of, that go all day fitness that I'll need. I was still doing some strength stuff. But when I went, so I, I was fine with all the, because everything comes down to push-ups and planks. They just, there's so many of them. Uh, I mean, I, I was telling you when you're here, I mean, we did one workout on the second day after swimming for an hour and a half, after this, after that, after all this other stuff, there was 450 push-ups. <laughs> it was just sets of 10 with a 30-second rest between every set of 10 just for however long that took us to, to get through. And, you know, 450 push-ups that's normally a lot of push-ups but that was just one of the things we did that day and so you, you know you start to realize that you probably can't train for a half Ironman at the same time or I can't I'm not talented enough to to be able to get away with that so I, I got booted out uh after like 14 hours or 15 hours or something the first time so we, we'd just done Murph we started about two o'clock in the morning after having started at 10 a.m um you know, we'd done what I will call some general light hazing for a few hours on the beach and everything for like three or four hours. And then we'd done, I don't know, all kinds of other horrible stuff. And we got till that night. We went for, I think it was about two hours of running on the beach. And, you know, just, and we just went so far. And I've actually, because I've stuck around in Encinitas uh, before and after the camp, and I ran not on the sand, but along the road by the beach. And it took me an hour and a half running normally to cover the same distance that we covered that night. And, uh, and then we ran back and then we started Murph. So if, if you're not familiar with Murph, it's a mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, run a mile. And the seal fit standard then was 75 minutes. And it took me like 77 minutes after wow. running the sand. I was, I was done. My legs just had nothing left. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do this thing again. So I signed up again for 2015. And it was, I, I'd been kind of pissing and moaning about it for a couple of months. I think I, I signed up in like October or something. So we get to Christmas and, you know, I'm really bitter and cynical by this point and, and filled with, with uh, you know, like self-loathing. And my girlfriend left the house on, on the day after Christmas for a couple of hours for whatever reason. And, and I was like, fuck it, I'm signing up again. And I fucking put all, my, <laughs> like, put, put all my details into the thing and she came home. I said, fucking going back, I'm doing it again. And, um, and then spent eight months training for it. So I trained from like January all the way through till, uh, till August when I went back, I had, there was a 10 day break in April where I went to Thailand and I did 10 days with Edo Portal, which was great. Cause it's like 10 days of mobility and flexibility training. So that was, you know, like we talked about this garage time before I had 10 days of basically just garage time while I was there. And I would sneak in like some extra swims and a run here and there just to keep the engine ticking over and then came back and 
went to another level. And then I, I had to go run a couple of RKC events in the States in June. And it was when I came back, it was six weeks to go. And so I, I came back and went to another level again. And then just before SealFit, I organized to go to Jim Jones for their level three workshop. So in my head, I was like, yeah, it's a little bit of altitude and it'll be nice and hot. So I get this because heat training is probably even better for you than altitude training. Um, and I, I know they, they train pretty hard, but uh, it was interesting because I was training so much and so hard that the Jim Jones level three certification, which is meant to be like the, the really tough one, that was my recovery week before SealFit. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you mentioned that to me and I was just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was funny. Like there was one day we walked up a hill and it's like a two mile walk and it's pretty steep. Like it, it's a challenging walk, but like we got to the top. I'm like, okay, so that's like one hour done. What are we going to do now for the next four or five hours? Everyone else was wiped out because, and it, it's, it's just what you get used to. You know, if you're not used to, uh, carrying the engine because you know it's great you develop a big engine in the gym but if you can't carry it you're done and particularly you know from a seal perspective on the battlefield you got to be able to carry whatever muscle you create so if you can't do that you're going to have some problems um, and these guys were shot for the rest of the day after a one hour walk up a hill so I, I was I was running to and from the gym every day uh, sneaking in push-ups at lunchtime um, <laughs> And so I did the Jim Jones thing and took off like five days completely off after that and then hit seal fit again and, you know, using Murph as an indicator. So I, I did like 77 minutes the year before. I did 58 last year. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, nearly 20-minute difference in time. And uh, so Murph is they will performance drop you for things up to and including Murph. And then after Murph, the only way you're going home is if you decide you've had enough. So, uh, I mean, that was for me quite relaxing because I knew that, hey, I'm, I'm not quitting. And, you know, Murph had really been like a bugbear for me the year before. Like I, I clearly hadn't done it enough. And one of the big things I changed along with not training for a half Ironman was I did three workouts a week that were parts of Murph. So I would do, you know, just using the pull-up numbers. Instead of doing 100 pull-ups, I'd do like a day where I did 60 and then base the other things off that, a day where I'd do like 80, and then base the other numbers off that, and then a day where I'd do the full thing. And then I'd do other training on top of it as well. So, I mean, for most people, Murph is like, like you know, that's a big day. Murph was just a thing I was doing on those days. And it got to the point where, you know, I wasn't stressed at all about it. I was doing it with more weight than I had to and like crushing the time. And and, and that was the point where I was like, okay, like I'm really ready this year. So, um yeah, and that's probably actually given me a, a better understanding of what the the elite endurance guys go through because the the level of fatigue you get after three days of not doing anything, you really start to to see what's possible and what isn't. So you know the the decision whether you're going to keep pushing or whether you're going to deliberately slow down, whether you give up, uh, you know that's that's really helped in terms of speaking to those guys. So. Yeah, right. I mean, super experience. Yeah, when I read your writing, um, I think even in the last two years or so, you just have this uh, mental prowess that comes through in your words that I think uh, just from hearing the stories from you about 
uh, Kokoro camp and the Iron Man. It's something that you've done and you've uh, you really persevered mentally through some of this stuff. But I definitely saw that trickle into your professional writing because you know some of your articles, man. I read them, and I'm like all jacked up. I'm like, whoa, man, I need to I need to go to the gym or something. Oh my god. <laughs> so athletically, I suck, man. I'm I'm seriously like people, and, and I have customers who are about my age so I'm 44 and I, I joke with people that it's easy to look good at 44 because so many no no because so many of my peers have given up they've succumbed to middle-aged spread and and you know we've all got different time crushes so I'm I, I don't have any kids so you know for me that that's that's I don't want to say I'm lucky because you know like you can obviously see it from both points of view but for training, that makes it easier for me because I don't have that responsibility that, that needs to be dealt with every day. I don't have the fatigue that comes from playing with kids and, and looking after them and stuff. Um, but, you know, at 40, a lot of people are starting to just stop. So I start to look good. I, I joke around that by 70, I'm going to look like a world champion because, <laughs> you know, like, like everyone's going to stop by then. But I'm not very fast. I'm not very flexible. I'm not very strong. When you put it into context against, you know, like, like what the elite people are really capable of. So, I mean, Iron Man, for instance, the guy who won the year I did it, did it literally fifty percent faster than me. So he did eight hours, I did twelve hours. So fifty percent extra. I, I was one hundred and fifty percent of his time. <laughs> so you know, like when I watch the Olympic marathon, they run the first ten kilometers in half of roughly what it takes me to run 10 kilometers. <laughs> so, you know, like, like, like that puts it in perspective. I'm not great. But one thing I do have going for me is I, I am very disciplined and very stubborn. So, and I think for a lot of people, and this is training in general, right? Like how many people do you see who start and then because they didn't get a result today or tomorrow, they're like, oh, this is too hard. I give up. I, I'm fully prepared to stick at something for today, this week, this month, this year, next year, the next five years and just keep plugging away at it because I think that's where, you know, the real lessons come in it, because the physical stuff to me now at 40, like obviously I'm in a decline, right? Like I'm never going to be, if I haven't won an Olympic medal by now, it's not going to happen. So, <laughs> you know, the, but the lessons that we learn in the gym should be helping us outside. So the discipline, the willpower, the self-esteem, the, all these things that come from physical fitness, that should bleed into the rest of my life. And if I'm not seeing that, then I'm probably addressing training incorrectly. Like if I'm in my 40s and I'm training and I look in the mirror and I'm upset about what I see or I punish myself with exercise because of what I ate the day before or you know what I mean? Like, like that kind of negative stuff that goes with exercise if I'm still in having that as part of what I'm doing at 40, I'm doing it wrong because it should be improving the rest of my life. It has to. And that's something that I definitely preach a lot in my writing, even on this podcast, we've talked about it multiple times. It's about creating a lifestyle around your health, your wellness, and something that is just going to increase your enthusiasm for your life in general. So, you know, uh, Charles Staley, a friend of ours, talks about it. You know, he just stuck with, you know, lifting. And now all of a sudden he's like a world-class lifter at age 56. Yeah. But that could be anything for somebody. So if you were to give one recommendation for, you know, the aging lifter, the aging uh, person who wants to maintain their fitness forever, what would it be? Don't stop. Don't stop and <laughs> just keep don't on stop, going. Don't stop, man. Yeah. You, you know what? Like, you've got to be smart. Like I said, I mean, recovery becomes more important, but 
don't stop. Like there's my mother's 74. So she's got a power. My mom is an actual world champion. Oh, sorry. She's a world record holder. She, she tore her hamstring at the world championship. So she actually didn't on her first lift. So didn't even get a lift on the board, but, um, she's 74 and she, she's pulling world records. Now there's not too many 70 year old women who are deadlifting. So it, it, <laughs> you know, it, it's not a hotly contested division, you know, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, she's 74. Like how many 74-year-olds do you know who are going to the gym a few times a week? So that in itself shows you what's possible if you just keep going. Now, just to give some perspective, so she's 52 kilo, 74 years old, and her best deadlift is 85 kilo. Wow. That's not bad. I mean, I see video of other personal trainers posting clients of theirs deadlifting 40 kilo. I'm like, my mum can, <laughs> can literally lift double what your client can lift. And your client outweighs her by about 30 or 40 kilo. You need so, to start posting uh, that on people's pages. And you can link me in on it. And I want to jump in on that conversation. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? But, but the point is, just keep at it. Because, you know, I think the research that we see about what happens to aging populations is based on a population that was told to sit still when they got to a certain age. And of course you are going to see some decline. I mean, you know, there's a reason why there's no 40 year old gold medalists at the Olympics. Age is a bugger. That's all there is to it. But you know, it's possible to offset so much of it. You just got to stay active. Absolutely, man. So where can people find more from you, uh, your articles, uh, your products, your books, everything else? Wow. The list is long. Uh, let's see the, Many people probably found me through Breaking Muscle. So breakingmuscle.com, there's, there's always my stuff is on there. Uh, my website is in the process of being updated. So that's readpt.com, R-E-A-D-P-T.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I've got, you know, like one of those fancy author public figure pages as Andrew <laughs> Reed. And then the gym, if you want to come train with us, is Reed Performance Training on Facebook as well. Perfect. Uh, I can't wait until that new website is up. Uh, that's going to be one that I definitely check in with multiple times a week because uh, I, I love your stuff, man. Obviously, we connected for a reason, and I appreciate you hopping on this call today. We've had you here for a while. I know uh, you know this came together quickly, but it's been an awesome episode. Big thanks to Andrew Reed for hopping on Strength Talk Podcast today. We're going to have some exciting things coming out between Andrew and myself this year. So keep current over on drjohnrussin.com and over on Andrew's brand new website that should be up in a couple weeks. Until next time, guys, I'm Dr. John Russin with the Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media.